0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Well, hi there and happy Friday to you. Selena Green here for The Country Hour today. Coming up how you could be part of a research project to establish just how effective the Khaleesi virus is in killing rabbits. Speaking of rabbits, I'd like to know today, what kind of rabbit measure or well, control measures are you using at your place? My talkback number 1300 222 or the text line 0467 922891. will talk a bit more about that in this next half an hour, as well as how low could cattle prices go this year?
4: We've come off the bottom, that's without doubt in the last probably quarter, but we're still hovering at the bottom and we're needing global markets to improve. So the take home message is we need global demand to pick up.
3: That's coming very shortly as well. But first today, next time you come across a dead rabbit, consider taking a sample. Why? Well, CSIRO scientists want your samples from dead rabbits so they can monitor how well Khaleesi virus is spreading through and controlling rabbit populations. Now, this is part of a citizen science project that's been running for almost a decade. More than 3,000 samples submitted to date. Research scientist Dr Nias Peng says citizen science is a great way for scientists to get a handle on what's happening on the ground.
5: So this project is about... Understanding rabbit viruses in Australia and how we can use biocontrol to manage wild rabbits. Such efforts are designed to support the health of our vulnerable ecosystems. So, we need to be able to detect new recombinant versions of um, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus or RHDVs as they emerge. We also need to monitor declines in older variants because they can impact the effectiveness of future forms of biocontrol.
6: And to do that monitoring and detection work, you're, you're getting help from the public, essentially?
5: Yes, yes. So um, the public, or what we like to call them citizen scientists, are extremely important because they contribute samples for us to test and um, allow us to actually um, perform our research in that scale, in a nationwide scale.
6: And this is actually the the longest-running citizen science survey in relation to rabbit diseases in the world? Yes,
5: yes, yes. So this is actually the longest-running citizen science surveys of rabbit diseases in the world, yes.
6: So it's been running for nine years, and and you have had uh, assistance from the public to this point, but you'd like more?
5: Yes, we will um, love to have more samples submitted um, by the public to keep this going. It's important for us to actually um, continue this, this research, um, this survey, um, because biocontrol uh, or the use of RHDVs in, in managing the wild rabbit populations uh, is extremely effective. And having this information from the surveillance of viruses um, across the nation really contributes to that.
6: So if members of the public or citizen scientists are listening to this, how do they get involved?
5: So they can actually visit our um, website, um, researchcsroau slash RHDV, to find out more information. Um, but essentially, the gist of it is that um, they will submit a request for a sample kit. We will then send them a sample kit that will contain the instructions on how to actually submit samples to us.
6: Okay, so you're asking them to find samples of dead rabbits and uh, send them in to you?
5: Well, if they encounter dead rabbit or if they are a pet uh, owner themselves, then if they, um, they would be able to, um, you know, if they are curious to find out, uh, then they will um, use the kit and then follow the instructions and send the samples to us
6: that way. How many samples have you been receiving and, and how many would you like?
5: So over the past nine years, we have received over 3,000 samples. We would like to keep that going. The exact numbers per year varies. Um, depending on seasons, but it averages to about um, 200-ish um, per year.
6: And, Nias, just talk me through how how Khaleesi virus is actually performing at the moment in, in controlling rabbit populations.
5: So the current um, RHDV K5 biocontrol is actually effective at a localised level. So what I mean by that is it's actually really effective in managing the wild rabbit colonies at a local ar- area in which
6: is applied. And I know we have multiple strains and there have been new strains introduced. So uh, does the, the efficacy of of each strain diminish over time and it, it, does that necessitate the need for, for new strains?
5: So uh, new strains are necessary, but currently right now the natural strains are more effective in doing their work in managing the... Um, Wild rabbit populations, but it's not to say that our current biocontrol is not working as well. There are they, there's always some form of competition between the variants as they circulate around um, the rabbits, uh, and and that's just part of it. And we are hoping that um, by continuing this surveillance program, we are able to then detect more recombinant or new variants, such that um, they can be. Further investigated and uh, research upon on whether they are they, they can be used as a updated um, biocontrol strain.
3: That was Dr. Nias Peng. There he's a research scientist at the CSIRO, and he was speaking with Angus Verley. we speaking of rabbits. What kind of rabbit control measures are you using on your property? Integrated pest management is recommended as the most cost-effective and effective way of managing invasive pests, including rabbits, but how many land managers actually use integrated pest management? Well, South Australian ecologist Dr Pat Taggart has been researching that very question when it came to rabbits.
7: Integrated pest management is the application of one or more control methods to the same population and while doing so, considering both ecological and economic aspects to that control. Uh, and using that ecological and economic forethought to plan when and how you should be implementing that control. Um, So in the case of rabbits, this means applying combinations of warren ripping, warren fivigation, poison baiting, local biocontrol release, trapping or shooting, and when doing so, considering the ecology of the rabbits and when might be best to apply these controls. So uh, this for rabbits is typically late summer or early autumn, But in addition to this, considering the economics of the control you're planning, so, for example, if you're trying to tackle rabbits over a particularly large area, it doesn't make sense to fumigate warrens and then rip warrens because fumigation is very labour-intensive at large scales, Um, whereas warren ripping is comparatively cheaper at these large scales. So when we give it that economic forethought, it makes more sense then to rip the warrens at a large scale and then only fumigate those relatively few warrants that reopen
3: so as you say there's a few different options there for land managers and different mixes of ways in which they can be implemented so explain a bit about the question that your study was hoping to answer about the way people are using these these options
7: yeah we're interested in integrated pest management um, because it's considered best practice um, and so in the case of rabbits our study you really want to see to what extent um, do land managers apply best practice or apply integrated pest management um, when managing rabbits. I mean, if there were certain combinations of controls um, that were more likely to be integrated with one another.
3: What did you find out about how prevalent uh, integrated pest management was?
7: So overall, integrated pest management occurred approximately 40% of the time, so not an insignificant portion of control attempts. However, it highlighted that there is plenty of room for improvement and that more effective rabbit control could be achieved if the principles of integrated pest management were better adhered to.
3: When you looked at the mixes of the types of management practices that that people were using, what what generally were the most popular or the most common that uh, that people were using?
7: So the most common controls used were warren fumigation, warren ripping, and local RHDV biocontrol release. Warren ripping and fumigation appeared to be frequently. Integrated with one another or conducted in combination with each other, fumigation was also commonly integrated with trapping, uh, and RHDV release was most commonly integrated with trapping or shooting.
1: You did
3: um, raise some concerns about the use of RHDV, particularly in in some cases being seen as a, a bit of a, a silver bullet. Is, is it problematic if that's being used as a, a singular rabbit control method?
7: Yeah, it's important here actually to make the distinction uh, between the natural continent-wide circulation of the RHDV biocontrol virus and local releases of RHDV. So local releases of RHDV, for example, a single landholder releasing RHDV on their property are problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, First, as you mentioned, is because... People appear to think that local releases of RHDV are a silver bullet and are the only control necessary to effectively control rabbit populations. But this is definitely not the case. Um, local releases of RHD often achieve an insignificant level of control. Uh, they're often conducted at the wrong time to maximise rabbit population reduction. And additionally, uh, our study shows that when people release RHDV, they are much less likely to apply any other form of control. So this is, in contrast, to the natural circulation, natural continent-wide circulation of the RHDV biocontrol across Australia that has unequivocally achieved um, immense environmental, agricultural and economic benefits.
3: So what's the, the benefits uh, for land managers out there to do a, a real mix of using these integrated practices more widely for rabbit control?
7: So so in general, if the principles of integrated pest management were better year two when controlling rabbits we would expect that a greater level of control should be achieved and at a proportionally lower cost so basically more bang for your buck in terms of rabbit management.
3: Rabbit numbers these days obviously over the years um, there has been a lot of work gone into to bringing rabbit numbers down and um, in, in some areas significantly lower than what they were some decades back is it as necessary as it ever is to to control rabbits?
7: Yeah, it's definitely true that some land managers' rabbits might be further down the list of priorities. Um, However, they're definitely more than deserving of a significant focus, even nowadays when a land manager might be comparing them to what they used to be back in the 1990s or 50s or whatever. There's pretty good evidence that even at particularly low numbers down to one rabbit per two hectares, studies have shown that they can still be solely responsible for preventing the regeneration of some shrubs. Um, In addition to this, rabbits are well known to support increased predator populations. They effectively spread and promote the growth of weeds. They contribute to erosion and additionally damage the properties of soils in such a way that they're then less amenable to vegetation growth. So, yeah, even at what may appear to be lower rabbit densities, they're very deserving of effective management and
3: a strong focus. That's Dr Pat Taggart there, South Australian-based arid rangelands ecologist and he's working with Bush Heritage Australia. It's 17 minutes past 12 here on The country. Well Bigger Cheese this week reported 1.7 billion dollars in revenue for its first half of 2024. That's a 3% increase on the same period last year. The company's share price shot up 12% in response to the announcement Cheese managed to pay down about $70 million in debt after it sold property in Port Melbourne and Canberra and sold off the company's interest in a joint venture with Vitasoy. In a presentation to shareholders on Wednesday, Cheese CEO Peter Finlay reported a 20% increase in earnings. This is before interest tax depreciation, and that's compared to the first half of 2023. He said commodity prices had helped improve the company's results.
4: We are seeing a slight return of commodity prices. That's really based around, it's really been supply-led at this stage. So supply reduction of Europe, supply reduction of supply being turned off out of the US, which has brought back some some strength into the commodity market. So it's not demand-led yet. However, we feel that as demand starts to pick up, that could actually accelerate commodity prices further.
3: That's some of what Bigger Cheese CEO Peter Finlay had to say when he was speaking to shareholders earlier this week.
2: You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Well, cattle prices will not be as low as they were in 2023 for at least the next five years. That's at least the prediction of one industry analyst. It comes as new figures from the ABS says Australia's cattle herd is in a holding pattern. But there is a big difference depending on which state your cattle are in. Warwick Long spoke to Simon Quilty from Global AgriTrends about the data.
4: Very interesting figures in the sense that the herd continues to contract, but the pace of liquidation has slowed down dramatically. And overall, we've still got a number of states, I guess, contracting, but I would at best describe the herd today in a holding pattern across Australia, but interestingly, we had Of the number of states in which was contracting the last quarter, there was close to three contracting, I guess, in the last quarter. And today that's jumped to four contracting, two on hold, two now expanding. So we've got Queensland actually improving and Tasmania improving in terms of rebuilding but the other states still are contracting and it nets out with overall Australia's in a holding pattern.
8: So we're not getting bigger, we're not liquidating. I suppose, does that show that farmers in the industry in general just looking at the weather to see what will happen next?
4: I think you've really got to look at it state by state and I think it tells me that New South Wales truly was the problematic state, that that was the driest and we saw you know, in that August, September, October period, the driest three months on record. But also it tells us where the rain's fallen. And would you believe that, you know, over the last three months, Queensland's rainfall is in their top 10% over the last 120 years. So they've really responded to that November, December, January rain. And interestingly, Victoria sits in the top 2%. We've got one of the second or third highest last three months in Victoria of rainfall on record. I think that figure for Victoria really is an overflow of New South Wales cows coming into Victoria to be liquidated and it's distorted the Victorian figures.
8: Where does this leave the state of the beef market? We saw difficult conditions for farmers in terms of prices they were getting at the end of last year. That turned around around the the turn of the year. Where do we sit now?
4: Well, Oric, to me, all of this recent rise is on the back of restricted supply. It isn't on the back of strong global markets. So contrary to popular belief that higher exports means better demand, that's not true. In actual fact, throughout all of last year, we took lower prices in all global markets with beef and with lamb and mutton and we've come off the bottom that's without doubt in the last probably quarter but we're still hovering at the bottom and we're needing global markets to improve so the take-home message warwick is we need global demand to pick up i've spoken to you
8: in the past about australia having the cheapest beef in the world is that still the case
4: No, it's not. I mean, you know, we can find lots of countries, but right now, in actual fact, we are cheaper than Brazil and the US. Today, Australia sits on finished cattle into, um, you know, into a processor of around 390 a kilo live weight. We've got Brazil at 445 for an equivalent size animal and the US at $6. That's
8: Australian dollars?
4: That's correct, Warwick.
8: So we're not the cheapest, but compared to our major export competitors, we are still cheaper in terms of what farmers are getting for cattle than those nations. Because of that, you see upside in what producers can get this year.
4: Warwick, I think globally livestock prices are too cheap, full stop, including America, including Brazil and ourselves. And we are, I'm of the opinion, about to move into resetting the, the, the market and what I would call the new norm in which we are going to trade at significantly higher levels than what we've seen over the last five years. And as we get into 2025 next year and beyond, we trade at new levels. And with that, I am calling the EYCI, the ECI, to be at around about 1250 in 2026 and 1250 in 2027 today's price is about 650 today the figures showed us on cattle that we've come out at a break even we're neither building um, or liquidating but as we go forward i think the peak in production for beef has now been put in place And hereafter, for the next probably five years or longer, seven years, we will not get back to these high levels of beef production.
8: Extrapolating that out, you think the low prices of 2023, particularly for beef producers, is probably the worst they're going to get for the next half decade?
4: Longer. Thereafter, Warwick. I have a seven-year average on pricing on the EYCI from 2025 to 2032, at 1,050. And if we were to talk in feeder steer prices, my seven year average for, for 2025 to 32 is 520. Keep in mind today's price is 345 live weight. So a 520 average on feeder steers from, for seven years from 2025 to 2032. Welcome to the new norm.
3: Simon Guilty there from Global Agri Trends speaking to Warwick Long. 25 minutes past five, let's head to the Weather Bureau. Jenny Horvat, hello and happy Friday. Happy Friday, Selena, to you and your listeners. How is the weather looking across South Australia?
9: Yeah, looking much cooler across most of the state today following that change that moved through western and sort of central parts um, yesterday and it's continued to move northeast today and finally starting to make its way up into the far northeast corner as we speak. So relief coming up to the far northeast as well. Had a little bit of a hot night up there still those minimum temperatures in the mid-20s where there was a little bit cooler further south and west where we did see that change move through. Had a bit of a cloudy start to the day, especially across southern and and western parts, a little bit of light shower activity showing up on the radar around sort of southern coasts and ranges, but not too much in the gauge. Since 9mm, we've only really gauged 0.2 of a millimetre at Parawa. So I guess still the chance to see that odd spot or two, especially around southern coasts and southern ranges um, as we head into the afternoon, but becoming less likely. And really not expecting much more than the odd spot or point two at best in the gauge for today and maybe tomorrow again around those southern coasts, first thing in the morning, but really not expecting anything too significant. So um, generally we are tendering to look at a little bit of a, a dry change. Um, that change pushing up could get a little bit gusty this afternoon as it pushes to the northeast there, maybe a little bit of dust up in that far northeast corner, but not expecting too much otherwise As with that. As we look to the weekend and early next week, our dominant weather um system is the high-pressure ridge that will dominate to the south. Um, high-pressure system coming across today, but then moving into the Tasman by the weekend, but another one sort of coming through from WA. So, um, yeah, just just pretty much a, a ridge of high-pressure dominating for the next couple of days as we head into next week. So, again, we are looking at a dry um weekend ahead so temperatures today looking well below average for this time of year again on Saturday we're looking at below average but maybe a little bit warmer than today and then as we head into Sunday might start to see a little bit of warmth coming back especially across our western and northwestern parts it could be a little bit of a foggy start on Sunday morning a um, little bit of moisture hanging around across central districts through there but it should be pretty isolated and not last for too long Monday again Again, looking like a bit of a a dry start, those winds shifting a little bit more sort of easterly, maybe trying to trend a little bit northeasterly, so temperatures slowly rising and again as we head into Tuesday and Wednesday we are looking at those temperatures on the rise with those northerly winds, so looking at potentially another hot day on Wednesday with some elevated fire danger, but a bit of a watch this space as we head into the midweek. There is a change that looks like it could come through either later Wednesday into Thursday, but we'll watch this space um, regarding the timing and whether we see much precipitation with that. The other watch point for next week is up near our NT border. It looks like another lot of moisture coming in across the territory there and whether we start to see a little bit of shower and thunderstorm activity across the far north developing later in the week as well. A little bit of a, a watch this space. But as far as any sort of notable rainfall goes, um, like I said for today, maybe a few spots around southern um, coasts and ranges again first thing Saturday morning but then looks like we've got a bit of a, a dry dry spell for the weekend and maybe Tuesday, depending on that timing, we could start to see some precipitation in the very far west near WA, but generally again, falls looking less than five millimetres and a lot of uncertainty with that timing. We'll have a better look at that next
3: week there, Selena. All right, well, we will catch up again next week. Thanks, Jenny. Have a great Friday. Thank you. Jenny Horvat. there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow. The upper western looking at a mostly sunny day with the chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the morning and afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling between 16 and 22 during the day. Those temperatures getting up to between 31 and 36 degrees. A sunny day forecast for the lower western district with the overnight temperatures getting down to around 11 to 15 degrees, a bit cooler, with daytime temperatures reaching around 30. It is half past 12.
2: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena
10: Green.
3: Hey there. Well, you'll hear in this next half an hour about what kind of wine quality is expected out of one of our state's best wine growing regions this year. As a busy vintage gets underway, can you expect some extra tasty South Australian drops from 2024? Also, have you ever wondered what's involved in growing hemp? and the products that it can be turned into. There are many, many uses for hemp. Well some potential future farmers in the form of local high school ag students have spent this week finding out. You know some of them are a bit hesitant about trying
11: it because it's hemp and a bit of peer pressure and they all had a taste and they were pleasantly surprised and some even came back for a second. So it's really nice to show that hemp isn't scary, it doesn't taste all that different, it is beneficial for them, for them to understand that that it's a
3: nutritional product to have. You're going to head along to a hemp field day shortly. First, here's Matt Coleman with headlines. Hello, Matt.
12: Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a dozen women who allege they were sexually harassed while working at a major supermarket supplier have begun mediation with their employer. The women are taking action against Grow Up affection Fresh, alleging harassment by staff members at its Two Wells location north of Adelaide. They're being represented by the United Workers Union, which says the insecurity in their jobs as migrant workers is a driving factor in exploitation. Towns near the WASA border could soon run out of supplies, with a large fire in Western Australia cutting off the main thoroughfare for goods across the border. On Wednesday afternoon, a large fire in Balladonia caused the air highway to close between Norseman and Kaiguna, the most heavily trafficked route in, to and out of Western Australia. Dozens of trucks have been forced to wait at service stations on either side of the fire, with reports of 80 trucks parked at Cocklebiddy. And the latest South Australian State of Environment report has identified climate change and biodiversity losses as major areas to focus on. The report, released every five years by the Environment Protection Authority, also recommends better management of plastics, the inclusion of Aboriginal values and knowledge and a government-led action plan. More news at one o'clock.
3: Thank you, Matt, Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, how might this year's wine be from both the Barossa and Clare Valley regions? Vintage has kicked off. It is reported that in both wine regions, the mild weather and the unexpected summer rain should see some good outcomes for the 2024 vintage. And there have been some unique traditions accompanying the start of harvest at both Seven Hill Cellars in the Clare Valley and also at Chateau Tanunda in the Barossa, where owner John Gerber begins this story with the ringing of a 144-year-old bell.
13: Ladies and gentlemen, and every guest... Uh, welcome to the vintage, as tradition has it. The newest member of the team up here, please. Uh, you've got to ring this bell 134 times, starting, <laughs> uh, starting now. <laughs> so that's really special for us as a company.
0: John Gerber, owner of Chateau Tananda, led their tradition of ringing in the bell to mark the start of their 134th vintage as the first Semillon grapes were delivered to the winery. Chief winemaker Neville Rowe is optimistic about this year's vintage.
14: So this is Semillon. Barossa Semillon is quite a unique style. We call it the Madeira clone. It goes a lovely sort of coppery pink colour as it ripens, and we just saw on those grapes that we were looking at that there is some of that uh, lovely light pink copper blush to them, and it has quite a lot of flavour. It is quite a flavour. Some young wine. Vintage is looking very good, promising this stage. We've got some some great closing weather for sort of ripening weather happening now, quite mild and nice warmth. We've had uh, an unusually mild sort of growing season. We were all thinking uh, El Nino and it was going to be hot and that's not a bad thing that that hasn't quite eventuated. And in fact, ripening and things were a little bit um, sort of perhaps delayed a fraction or close to average and now we're having some really lovely weather to finish it off. We had some good rainfall in November and December, uh, which really gets the vines a good kick on and they, they put on that burst of spring growth, and, which is ideal. Not huge crops on the vines. We're probably down off average maybe 20%, but quality will probably be up as a result. So we're really looking forward to seeing particularly the reds, I think, come through very strongly.
0: Neville Rowe. Following the favourable weather and as the grapes are starting to come into the winery... Senior winemaker at Chateau Tanunda, Jeremy Ottawa, is looking forward to producing a range of different wine varieties.
10: I, I think the, the concentration this year is going to be next level. They're very light crops, they're 20% down, but the berries are 20% smaller, which means we've got a lot more skin, skin to flesh ratio in the berries, which uh, gives us more intense flavours, more intense colours. So the, the intensity of this year, I think, is going to be mm. amazing. Mm. Yeah.
0: And uh, what's your favourite varietal to make?
10: Oh, that's like asking what, who your favourite child is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love Semillon. It's, it's great fun to work with. It's, it's delicate, but it handles a little bit of rough treatment. Barrel fermentation, Chardonnay's the same. Riesling loves that beautiful, very, very sort of delicate treatment. Shiraz, you can make Shiraz 50 different ways and it all looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, Gren, Grenache, which is... Uh, Again, playing around with different techniques to make a different style of wine there. So yeah, it's, I think getting stuck with a, with a favourite variety is a, a dangerous thing when there's so many fun varieties out there.
0: Jeremy Ottawa in the Barossa Valley. Up the road, the Clare Valley experienced some frost damage at the end of last year, which has reduced the quantity of this year's vintage and has affected some producers more than others. But Anna Bourne, Executive Officer of the Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association, says that on the whole, the mild conditions and the summer rains has also produced good fruit in the Clare Valley region. The season's been really kind to us here in the Clare Valley. You know, We started with some really good summer rains, And some really mild temperatures. So it's perfect conditions for fruit, and we're seeing some really great Riesling coming in at the moment. This week is a huge Riesling week, and then I imagine we'll just get a little teeny tiny break, and then we'll start to see Shiraz. So, you know, those conditions have been really great for um, flavour development, and we've got some lovely crisp acids in the Rieslings. I think it's going to be good also for the reds this year. So, I mean, we're also known for our Shiraz and our Cabernet. That's our, um, our trilogy, Riesling, Shiraz and Cabernet. So um, I think everyone's pretty excited for Vintage 2024. Anna Bourne. The Clare Valley has its own traditions and this week marked the blessing of the grapes at Seven Hill Cellars. Managing Director Jonathan O'Neill explains.
15: Oh, look, it's, it's, it is tradition and, and it, it all goes back to that that, uh, Seven Hill was the first winery in in Clare Valley and it started in 1851 and it's still uh, Jesuit owned and so we have Jesuit priests here on the property and we've got vines here, Shiraz here, 160 years old and Grenache at 100 years old. So it's really fitting to keep our traditions and embrace them and celebrate them. We really want this tradition to go on and on because it's the fabric of of Seven Hill and it's why we're different and unique.
0: Managing Director of Seven Hill, Jonathan O'Neill, Old traditions means old vines, and for winemaker Will Shields, this means that the wine he produces can speak for itself.
13: It's the first day of harvest today, so we're we're picking Riesling. Generally, it looks pretty good, you know, cross fingers. We had a little bit of frost around here and around the area earlier in the year, so that's affected some fruit, but the majority of it looks, looks really good, sort of moderate yields and... You know, we're pretty excited about what's, what's out there and what's to come in. Shiraz is looking really good. So we've had a couple of weeks of, sort of warm weather, which has uh, really sort of brought those flavours on. And, and we're, we're pretty excited about Shiraz. I think Shiraz is going to look pretty good. Cabernet, not sure yet. Um, those varieties, probably just because I haven't been around the vineyards enough just yet to taste those. So the first things we get off are generally the Riesling and the, and the Shiraz. And then, and then some of those other varieties can come in a bit later. Our oldest vines were planted in 1860, so 160 years, I think that is. Yeah, so that's very old. And then we've got a lot of plantings that we've got some plantings that are 100 years old, and quite a few plantings in the 70s. So they, you know, they're they're a good 50 years old. So we've got a lot of old vine material, which is which is really good from a winemaking perspective. It gives me a lot of natural flavour in those old vines, and and a lot of complexity and soft tannins. And 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 I, as a winemaker, just sort of let the let the wine, the, the fruit, the wine speak for itself.
0: Winemaker Will shields. Jonathan O'Neill is excited about the quality of the Clare Valley vintage.
15: Because it's been quite mild up here in Clare Valley, the, the fruit flavours in the grapes are actually developing really slowly, so they're really quite intense. So the actual quality of the Clare Valley Vintage is going to be uh, extremely high, which is really exciting for the region. And it just also will be a real vintage to um, buy and sell so that's exciting for us to work with really great fruit. Uh, Seven Hill has been lucky from our vineyards. We've been lucky in, in terms of how, what the quality looks like. So, yeah, we're excited. We're actually very excited for the, for the vintage.
10: Cheers.
3: Cheers. Cheers. As the managing director of Seven Hill, Jonathan O'Neill ending that story from Kate Higgins and yes certainly wishing everybody a great harvest. Well, a commercial fisherman from Coffin Bay says he's disappointed that the state government has knocked back a recommendation to introduce a recreational fishing licence. Earlier this week, the state government released the Independent Cost Recovery Review Panel's report for the state's commercial fisheries and aquaculture sectors, and we spoke with the Minister for Ag about that earlier this week on the program. Key findings of that independent panel included strong overall support from stakeholders for the cost recovery concept, along with a desire to improve the current cost recovery Recovery System. Areas for improvement identified include regular benchmarking and a review of PERS's compliance and research programs and a more comprehensive performance framework for cost recovery. The panel also recommended the introduction of a recreational fishing licence, but the government says it's not considering that. Commercial fisherman Hugh Bailey has been pushing for more funding to come from recreational fishers to cover certain costs, and Brooke Neindorf spoke with him on his thoughts about the panel's report.
16: But the cost of process is something we been talked about for a long time. I think the basic thing that I wish the public would um, be informed on and understand is, the basic process is unfair because i listened to the Minister's interview and um, can understand the ins and outs of it, but the, the premise is that is it, is it, is it is fair for the commercial sector be paying, to be paying the vast bulk of the expenses in running the fishery, and it's not because... The commercial sector is only one sector that's a major stakeholder in the ownership of this resource. As the Minister rightly says, it's a public resource, the public has to own the resource, and the departments, Sardi and Persia, are managing its sustainability on behalf of them. So this, well, is looking, we'll,
17: this is looking at commercial fisheries and aquaculture sectors, so that's obviously just recovering money for those sectors.
16: Yeah, that's fine, but to not be having some input from government and other sectors... manage the same resource is not fair to start with.
17: What do you think Is there's a need to be more money from from
16: government? Well, the obvious starting point is the recreational fishing licence, which the Minister touched upon, and we all know that's a subject that's been um, talked about many times for many years, but I wish the public could be told the need and benefits of a recreational fishing licence because they're twofold. A recreational fishing licence would help contribute towards the management of the stock and with that funding, the government would also then be able to do a better job of managing the fish stock. There should be more compliance and more good science. The science is sadly lacking, as even the people that work in Sardi will let you know. There's lots of flaws in the science about managing, particularly, you know, the whiting and the snapper and the stocks because there's no, there's not enough data on what 300,000 people catch.
17: You mentioned there about the recreational fishing licence, which... Minister Scribbin has said that the government is not considering the panel's recommendation to introduce one of these. What's your your response to that?
16: Oh, it's unfair and it's sad because, as I just say, from the outcome, as I always do, this is a sustainability issue. This is a conservation issue. We're talking about fish stocks. Then we're also talking about who has access to them and, in reality, the distribution between the commercial fisher and the recreational fisher. But if you're not managing their fish stocks properly, everybody's going to lose in counting counting the owner of the fish stock which is the public the consumer the consumer sadly through no fault of their own because they don't it's not a big media attention discussion with a broader community but they're losing access to the fish because we as a as an industry and i'm talking about the marine scale sector are struggling to survive and basically um, high fees are one component of that the other is it's um, the competition to catch the fish so I think the government's missing an opportunity to rectify a problem that's not going to go away. And that's fair fees for all South Australians to um, benefit from.
17: Hugh Bailey, this has been a big topic that you've spoken about for a number of years. Will you keep pushing for for this, um, to have wreck fishing uh, contribute more to to the state and, and funding, even though it has been said by the government that they will not consider this uh, rec fishing licence?
16: I will keep pushing for it because it's a sad, silly, irresponsible thing we're involved in. I think it would be almost embarrassing these days to be a recreational fisherman under these circumstances. The vast majority of recreational fishermen care about the stocks, care about the pastime and want it to continue. We're depleting the stocks and we're not managing the situation and there's clearly some steps that could be taken that are fair that would improve the situation greatly. I wish there was more, breedier, more broader media attention to this subject because it needs to be. As the Minister said today or yesterday in her interview, they're not going to move on this unless they get broader and recreational support to do these things that they're doing. What's well, not, for a start, I'll say it's not only the recreational people that need to support it. The consumer is losing badly because he's losing access to it because as we do as an industry... He's got less chance to go to the restaurant or go to the shop and buy it because we're the ones that produce it. And all we're asking for as an industry is a fair deal in managing this very important resource,
3: the fish stocks. South Australian commercial fisherman Hugh Bailey. He was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. It's 15 minutes to one.
2: This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Here with Selena Green on this Friday. Have you ever wondered what it takes to grow a hemp crop? Well, agricultural students from Bordertown High School in the southeast spent time out in the field this week learning what's involved in growing and processing hemp seeds and fibre. The students were able to feel and see and even taste hemp seed for themselves at an event arranged by hemp retailer and processor Good Country Hemp. Co-owner Linda Anderson said the day was about educating the next generation of potential farmers. So we're trying to educate students about
11: hemp. It's an unknown industry still and we're trying to get the word out more and we think if we can get students to be aware of what hemp is, they're going to grow with it. They can go home and also tell their parents and teachers and help spread the word for us. It's all about education. Yeah, so it's a fair bit of effort to organise a day like today. It's been worth it. Yeah, definitely. It's really nice to have students asking questions and be interested, which they all have, just to make them aware of how we can use it, how it grows, what it looks like. It's quite unusual. And a lot of these kids come from ag backgrounds themselves. Important for them
18: to kind of learn as they eventually go into the industry themselves that this is a crop that's growing
11: in the region. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's so many career opportunities, isn't there, within a business. It's not just how to grow hemp. It's all the marketing. It's the food manufacturing it's the agronomy it's the farming there's so much to it and i think just to make them aware of what opportunities are out there and opportunities for them when they finish school
18: and they've learnt about different aspects of you know the actual physical farming how it's harvested and then what it turns into today
11: yeah they have and it's been really good that they've had farmers here who are growing the hemp who can give them that hand-on information straight away yeah
18: and what a few of them got to, well, all of them got to try some of the products, the, the hemp
11: seed and the new salad dressings made from hemp oil. What did they think? What was some of the feedback? You know, some of them were a bit hesitant about trying it because it's hemp and a bit of peer pressure and they all had a taste and they were pleasantly surprised and some even came back for a second. So it's really nice to show that hemp isn't scary, it doesn't taste all that different, it is beneficial for them, for them to understand that that it's a nutritional product to have
18: co-owner of Good Country Hemp, Linda Anderson.
11: On the day hemp grower Jack Gartner
18: from Mayerp Station in Coonawarra explained to the students how he and his family managed their hemp crops and how it had been a steep learning curve for them. He says the students were eager with lots of questions about this niche crop.
19: Oh, we've just been asked by Mick and Linda from Good Country Hemp to uh, to just take them through the crop and show them, I guess, the growing process before it arrives at their factory in Bordertown. Just about how we do it, what we do in order to uh, to grow the fibre for them.
18: So a group of 16-year-olds out in the uh, hemp crop, did they have some questions?
19: They had a lot of questions actually. They are a good bunch of kids. They are all from around obviously that border town area. A lot of them have got a farming background and farming knowledge and, and uh, some of them might have been teaching me. But no, they are a good group of kids asking how much water it uses, uh, how long it has to be uh, not watered for before um, harvest and all sorts of just genuine Uh, run-of-the-mill questions but they showed a lot of interest
18: yeah they didn't know a lot about it before today
19: no i don't believe any of them knew too much about it i mean obviously they knew they were coming to to learn about hemp crops and um and growing of hemp for food not necessarily fiber and uh i think they all took a lot out of it actually and just what mick and linda are doing with it and different products they're making with it
18: and how long have you been growing hemp for here uh, we've
19: been growing hemp now for uh, I think about four or five years. 2018, 2019 season we started uh, for Mick and Linda, and COVID shut the seed down for a bit. We've grown a lot of fibre, and just getting back into the seed for food now.
18: And seasons been going all right this year.
19: Seasons have uh, been fantastic. Yeah, and hemp is a good um, a good plant. I suppose, good commodity to have uh, during the summer. It uh, fits in with our winter program. We can still grow a good, solid wheat crop and then come back in to put the hemp under irrigation and then uh, have it off the paddock and ready to prepare for next year's you know grain crop, whether it be seed, canola, beans, whatever.
18: Hemp grower Jack Gartner. Bordertown High School Ag teacher Helen Altus says the field day was a great opportunity for the students.
11: Well, it's been a very successful day. It's been good to learn... Um, the difference about hemp growing and um, all the aspects of from seeing it grown in the paddock to how it ends up at a product
18: good opportunity for the kids to get out of the classroom and learn in person
11: yeah definitely definitely i think they got a lot out of it and had a bit of fun and
18: learned a bit on the on the way yeah, and it's a very new crop in the region it's a good opportunity for them to kind of be on the cutting edge of what's happening
11: yeah definitely definitely and uh, yeah i would think that uh, none of them knew much about hemp before they came out here today so yeah they would have picked up hopefully picked up something
3: as Bordertown High School ag teacher Helen Altus there, ending that report from Elsie Adamo. Well, every day our truckies deliver products to keep our country going. It's not an easy job, especially when the roads are closed and towns get cut off, like with all the weather events that Queensland's recently been through. A Torrens Creek pub in North Queensland garnered national attention after it implemented a pay-it-forward scheme to feed truck drivers if they're doing it tough. Grace uh, Nakamura caught up with Oasis Exchange Hotel owner Priscilla Melly.
1: I originally just saw it. Uh, Cole's got me onto reels. I'd never sort of looked at reels before. Now I'm addicted. And there was one uh, from the states somewhere where it was just in general for people doing it tough. And then it just came together because the same day I'd, I'd seen that reel, we had a truck driver come in and he'd just finished helping somebody uh, fix an airbag. And the guy said, "Look, I'll give you a hundred bucks, mate. I'd like to give you more." I've only got two hundred bucks to go from, you know, A to B and, and the the customer that the regular said, you know, I'm not taking that. That's that's fine. So we were sort of just chatting about how things are in general, you know, electricity prices, young families, fuel and um how small towns like us rely on on drivers to get stock and, and produce and, and things like that. And yeah, we just sort of thought, well, it's not an original idea, but what if we morph this with this and see how it goes? So the pub, or we purchased on behalf of the pub a few meals and just put them on the board and, and put it online to a couple of truckie pages saying, hey, this is what we were doing. And I think it was within 24 hours, I said, to Nicole, I'm not sure what's happening here. Is this what they call going viral? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know. We were getting calls, and we still are, from people in New South Wales, Adelaide, Perth, Victoria, just everywhere wanting to help so yeah it's uh it's been great i mean these people have to physically look us up on our website to to get the info or chase us up on facebook so they're going out of their way to uh, to donate or to contribute to this initiative it's really it's really um, heartwarming to see we've had a lot of people wanting to donate, some ex-truckies, some from a, a family background of truck drivers, uh, pensioners, which pulls at my heartstrings every time they want to donate. Uh, one lady called, she had cancer, she was a truck driver and then she got diagnosed with cancer. and um, So a, a lot of just real uh, everyday Aussie battlers, you know, wanting to call up and lend a hand. You know, I literally have to walk around all day with with the phone on me now because uh, we're getting so many calls and so many people wanting to help. And have you given out any of these free meals yet? And what was the the response from the truckies? Yeah, we have, but more than anything because it's still fresh and it's, you know, week one, we're just telling them about it, you know, hey – this is what we've started and all these people are calling in, putting stuff on the boards. So please don't feel uh, embarrassed or whatever if you're having a tough week. Um, just, just pick something off the board, bring it to Cole, and we'll make sure you get fed. See, you don't have to be a really poor person constantly. You can be strapped for cash for a week because of a big bill or you forget your wallet or, you know, something unexpected
3: happens. Such a lovely concept. That was Priscilla Melly. She's from the Oasis Exchange Hotel in Queensland, and she was talking there to Grace Nakamura.
0: ABC iView melts the heart with Better Date than Never.
9: I would like to kiss someone. Take Five
12: with Zan Rowe. Yeah, there's a real kind of declaration to finding the joy in life.
9: Film stars don't die in Liverpool. We had fun, mate.
0: Right? Yeah, we did. Starstruck. Just a little kiss, it was a pet Marriage. She's got such dreadful taste And man. Line of Beauty. You love him, don't
4: you? Yes, I do.
0: ABC
3: I View. Always free, always heartfelt. It's just going on five minutes to one. You're on the South Australian Country Hour with Selena Green. Well, we all know the wet season weather can cause havoc and create last minute changes of plans, especially when you're flooded in. But some station-dwelling Taylor Swift fans haven't let a little or a lot of rain get in the way of seeing their pop idol on the stage here in Australia when she's here this week. Bridget Herman has the story.
20: When Queensland's wet season threatened to derail Maddie Hall's chance to see pop star Taylor Swift perform in Sydney, she needed a getaway car and fast.
21: Um, So we've been reined in for the past five weeks and so this morning I had to get in a little R-22 mustering helicopter with no doors and fly into town to get on my Rex plane. So it has no doors and it's a two-seater chopper with your leg room. I had my handbag under the seat, my duffel bag with my feet on top of it. So I was a bit scared I was going to like maybe fall out even though I knew I wouldn't just because it was a bit awkward but yeah there's not a lot of room in them. She's a governess working on a station
20: 70 kilometers out of Normanton in the Gulf of Carpentaria. She knew all too well that being so remote might mean getting creative when it came time to head to the show.
21: It's always been a possibility but it was always we might be able to drive we might be able to drive and then on Monday it was like you're probably gonna have to fly so at the moment the river over the bridge to town is three meters above the road um and the other bridges the other way to town are also well underwater um and just road like the water washes the roads out now driveway floods over things like that yeah just Floodwater. We've had a lot of rain being wet season and also rain in other places that runs down and brings floods with it. And it's making for a round trip of more than 5,000
20: kilometres.
21: So I've gone from the station to Normanton to Cairns to Sydney and then my way back is Sydney, Mount Isa, Doomagie, Mornington Island, Normanton station.
20: She isn't the only Swifty who's using a helicopter to reach the concert. On the other side of the country in Western Australia, Maddie Staff lives on a station in the Kimberley near the Northern Territory. Her summer was looking cruel when she also found herself flooded in.
22: Unfortunately, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln had some other ideas and dropped over 200 mils in in a night basically and completely flooded us in like the river that we're next to came right up to the back of the house, the chicken coop, the dogs, being wet season and where we are, uh, there's, there's plenty of companies around that do offer charter services. However, I've got some very good friends and made a few calls around and shout out to Kayla for actually getting me onto uh, this pilot who happened to be based just up the road from us who was able to ferry me out that day. A typical 22, uh, we strapped my son into a baby carrier and then he's, yeah, obviously legally allowed to fly on my lap with another belt. So we strapped him in and uh, did what we could and no doors through some pretty interesting weather.
20: It's been a journey to see the singer, but these fans are ready to be enchanted.
22: Swifties go to some extreme lengths to get to get to Taylor Swift and um, it's, it's going to be...
3: A fearless night, hopefully. Maddie's staff finishing that story from Bridget Herman. I hope they have the best of nights. They've certainly worked hard to make sure that they get there. Uh, And you will have the best of times with Deb Tribe. She'll be with you for this afternoon's program and she'll be talking one hit wonders after three o'clock today that should be a fun one and asking you the question if you would hang a nude in your home maybe you've already got one uh thanks so much for your company today that's it for the country hour you can catch up more on our website and the abc listen app as well it's time now for the one o'clock news lend us your ears download the abc listen app and find all our
0: audio in one handy place Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station
2: page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.